0: This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McCrae. You'll like Ron Brooks and the stories and farming ideas he has to share. We go to his dairy to talk about everything from cover crops to the future of manure management and how their farm has transitioned from one generation to the next over time. Plus, you'll find out why they always plant corn on May 5th, regardless of the weather. It's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, and it's brought to you by Pivot Bio. One of the biggest concerns for farmers this year are rising input prices, and at the top of many lists is nitrogen. Even with higher prices, you still need nitrogen, of course, in today's world, and I'm looking for ways to increase bushels while still using more sustainable farming methods. That led me to Pivot Bio Proven 40, which can produce up to the equivalent of 40 pounds of synthetic nitrogen. Our field demonstrations show an opportunity for a better ROI and reduction of synthetic nitrogen. Turn to a better nitrogen with Pivot Bio. I hope you'll learn more. Just go to PivotBio.com. I struggled with a title for this week's program. Not because there wasn't good content, but quite the opposite. We covered a lot of good topics, and it was hard to prioritize. As you'll hear, we talked about everything from Ron Brooks' national ranking as a barefoot water skier to why his farm will always plant corn on May 5th, regardless the weather. There are fun stories such as those, but we also get into some of the best practices that his operation has developed over time, practices that many of us can learn from. We'll touch on cover crops, manure management, herd nutrition, and more. I found there were many topics of interest, and I think you'll be interested in the breadth of the subjects Ron shares, no matter what you may do in the ag industry. Ron, we're here on your dairy farm. This farm dates way back. Take me back to the the beginnings of the farm.
1: Well, on the wall is a picture of my great-great-grandfather. That's Luther West. Uh, He emigrated here from England. Well, not here exactly. He was in uh, Lowell, Massachusetts, working on a cotton gin, and uh, in 1853, came to Wisconsin. 1855, President Polk homesteaded, uh, the Homestead Act was enacted, and we have the paperwork that uh, Luther had when he got the 160 acres under the Homestead Act signed by President Polk. We have a peace pipe uh, that's been passed down through the generations. So the story goes, now, this is all word of mouth, and I can't verify any of it. My grandfather was a great storyteller, so some of it may have been enhanced through the years. I even, as a child, noticed that it got enhanced every time I heard the story. But the story goes that uh, the Menominee Indians were on this land and were forced into a reservation west of here in Nakusa. They were given the opportunity, or the right, I guess, to still harvest wild rice in what is now Lake Poygan. Our farm happens to be about the halfway point. So they would traverse halfway, camp on our hills, and then go the rest of the way, harvest wild rice, and then on the way back, the same thing. They would camp on the hills again. The white settlers weren't real crazy about this idea. And the Native Americans just never really wrapped their heads around land ownership because, like water, they felt land was something that you couldn't own. And arrows were flung, shots were fired. I don't think anybody ever got killed or wounded. But finally, uh, cooler heads prevailed, and they sat on top of this hill behind us, and they smoked a peace pipe. And that peace pipe has been a rite of passage on this farm. Uh, Everybody that's owned the farm, except my father, uh, has had this peace pipe in their possession when they were running the farm. And the reason my father didn't ever get the peace pipe handed to him was... My grandfather caught him lashing it to a stick and using it as a tomahawk. It looks like a tomahawk. It's a Calumet piece pipe. And he lashed it to a stick and was playing with it as a tomahawk. And my grandfather vowed he would never let my dad have it. So it skipped a generation and it went right to me. Let's skip up to
0: generation to your grandfather. You mentioned there earlier, uh, you always plant corn on his birthday, which is May 5th. Talk about why you do.
1: <laughs> yeah, blessing or curse. Um, <clears throat> my grandfather was born 5'5 five, five of oh five. He and I were always in charge of corn planting. And back to the days when it was a four-row 38-inch 30 in, corn planter with dry fertilizer, my job as a 10-year-old was to keep the 50-pound bags of dry fertilizer opened and ready for him every three rounds. He would have to fill his corn planter. And that was, that was just us. We were a tag team, and that's what we did, and we took a lot of pride in it. He was... Uh, Always adamant that we planted corn on his birthday, 5th of May, Cinco de Mayo. And some days that meant we, or some years that meant that we would have to go out and punch corn in by hand if it was raining. So come hell or high water, we planted corn. Now, fast forward, my grandfather's on his deathbed. Uh, he'd been in a coma since 8 o'clock. All of his children were there with him. Um, I had to milk cows, of course, because all of his children weren't, weren't milking cows. <laughs> and no cell phones then, so I got done with the evening milking. Uh, remember he'd been in a coma since 8 o'clock. He was barely breathing. They said he was still alive. So I raced to the hospital. This man adored me and hated pretty much everybody else in the world. Uh, I think he liked me more than his own children. And he and I just had a bond. And when I walked through the door of his hospital room, this man who was comatose and breathing like once every minute sat bolt upright in bed, Stared me in the eyes, ignored everybody else in the room and said simply, you're going to plant corn on my birthday, right? And then died. So (laughs) I'm terrified what would happen if I didn't plant corn on his birthday. And remember, at that point, I was not going to be a farmer. That was the last thing I wanted to be. I was going to be a veterinarian. What did bring you back to the farm then? Well, a lot of things. I think, you know, any farm kid, you know, that seed gets planted and it just kind of gnaws at the back of your brain. Um, what brought me back was I couldn't bear to see it get sold. I was, a, I was a senior in college. I went to University of Wisconsin-Madison. I had a dairy science degree. I was accepted into the vet, vet school, the brand-new vet school in 1982. The day after I was accepted into vet school, my uncle, who had MS, told my father that he was retiring, not asked if he could retire. He just said, in three months, I, I'm out. And my father called and said, uh, "Here's the options. Uh, I, I know you're going to vet school. I just wanted to put this on the table to make it all fair, so you wouldn't be able to come back and say, "Well, I wish you would have told me." And I said, "Well, what are you going to do if my uncle when my uncle retires, he said, "Well, if you're not coming back, I would probably just gra- I would sell the cows, and I would uh, continue growing grain for a while, and then just slowly, probably piece off the farm and sell it." And that's the part that I just couldn't bear. Um, You know, I had skin and sweat in this game. And I give the university a lot of credit. They made my transition very easy. Remember, they had just allowed me into their vet school. They brought my dad down to Madison, and they created a transition plan not only to get me into the farm, but to get my father out. And that plan looked like this. So they said Dodge needs my dad Dodge needs to uh, have a home off the farm. He cannot live on the farm because it's just too convenient for him to always be there then. So they felt that that mileage was 10 to 15 miles away from the farm. So we built a home on the river uh, about 12 miles away. And the farm, the business actually built that home. And we owned a lake home, uh, or my father owned a lake home. So in exchange for his equity or my equity in that river home, he gave me the, the lake home. Nothing really changed. We all still use the lake and the river. It was just the name on the paper. But that was a good way to make an equity exchange and get equity in my name. They demanded, and I wasn't such a big fan of it at first, but they said uh, for five years you need to be just an employee. So if you change your mind um, and leave the farm, you don't take any equity with you. So I worked as an employee for five years, and then after five years... Every purchase we made was made on a 50-50 agreement where if we bought a new tractor, I had 50% of it. And every land purchase we made, I had 50% of it. So eventually, I became like a 35 to 40% owner, and we built up a war chest. And then that made the transition really easy. When Dad retired, um, I was able to afford to buy his portion of the farm out.
0: You have four daughters now, and I know you've discussed some of the transition, and I think it's still... Part of it that you want them to go work somewhere else as well Just like you did to get some knowledge before they come back here to the farm. Is that right?
1: Yeah, absolutely Uh, I think it's I think it's paramount that uh, After college you need to work somewhere else first if you go to college uh, And then come back you're going to just continue to do things the way I did or your grandfather did And you're not going to bring new ideas back, and then we stagnate if we're not trying new things uh, we're either sitting still or moving backwards and I was allowed to skin my knees and make mistakes, and there was never any finger pointing or I told you so. And I believe that Zoe would tell you the same thing. I am um, open. I try to be open-minded. Uh, at times, you know, the senior partner has to go, no, you know, that's where I draw the line. But that, that's a pretty uh, faint line in the sand. I, I give her a lot of latitude. She's a brilliant young lady. If I don't allow her to try new things, uh, we're not going to move forward.
0: Speaking of new ideas, let's jump over to some of those. And one of the things that we've talked about uh, today have been cover crops. You're in a part of the uh, country where a lot of ground gets tilled because we feel like that we have to get it warm and dry. But you don't do that. So talk about uh, why you do that and how you have uh, fared so far.
1: Yeah, there's a million reasons that people will give you for tillage. I think most of it is that they just like to do it. Um, I had an employee that threatened to quit because we went into no-till. He just loved driving big tractors. There is that push, we've got to till the soil to dry it out. We've got to till the soil to loosen it up. I hear that a lot. My father still says, well, we've got to get out there with a the ripper and loosen that up. I said, Dad, I can, I can just plant radishes. You know, and They'll do a far better job at loosening it up than any, any amount of tillage ever will. But what I always fall back on is photosynthesis. Um, it is... You know, we talk about the seven wonders of the world. Yeah, the Great Wall of China's cool, Taj Mahal's cool, but truly the first wonder of the world should be photosynthesis. I tell employees, I tell my daughters, I tell anybody that'll listen, I draw on a whiteboard, I'll draw the the formula for photosynthesis. Six H2Os, six CO2s, a little bit of fairy dust, and look what comes out the other side. C6, H12, O6, and this six oxygens over here. And what's that fairy dust? It's sunlight, and it takes a lot of energy to make that that equation happen. But that truly is the first wonder of the world. And when you get photosynthesis working on your side instead of trying to work against it, uh, and you and you come to the mindset that you're working with nature instead of against it, and you look at, you know, you do tillage. What's the first thing that Mother Nature wants to do? Grow weeds and get a cover crop on it. Uh, if if I don't disturb that soil and don't bring up those that that cornucopia of of weed seeds that's uh, in the ground i can manage my weeds a lot better and then with the aliopathic effect of cereal rye uh we use very you know considerably less herbicides than we ever did when we were conventional tilling
0: so talk about here in this part of wisconsin what are you using for cover crops and then how do you get them seeded because a lot of times that window is pretty short after harvest so how, what are you what are you seeding and how are you
1: doing it that's a big challenge. Um, we're at 44 degrees north latitude, so you know we do grow 105-day corn, 110-day uh, corn on a new year on a good year, but uh, yeah, fairly short growing window. But now most of our forage, our corn is coming off as forage, so that moves us back about three weeks. So that allows us to at least get cereal rye in. Uh, we're looking at ways. I'd like to get a more diverse mixture in there. I want to bring crimson clover in. I want to bring brassicas in. We just can't plant those much past the middle of August and get, you know, have any effect. So Judd and I are actually uh, looking at some ways that we can plant our cover crops at the same time we plant our corn. We've tried flying them on. Um, quite honestly, it hasn't been very effective. We lose a lot in the world of the corn plant. Uh, unless you get the perfect conditions and get a rain, yeah, it just hasn't been real effective for us. Yeah. Are you to the point now, though, with your 100% cover crops in all acres? Yeah, 100% cover crops. Um, we brag that uh, every acre we own has a living root in it year-round now because between our alfalfa, and I've always, I've, I've always said that if we lose cows in Wisconsin, we're going to lose probably the most important thing we have going for us as far as water quality. We have 15,000 lakes in Wisconsin, and part of the reason we have such phenomenal water quality is we have alfalfa. Alfalfa is a magical crop. Uh, You plant it, and that's five years of virtually no erosion. That's five years of virtually no herbicides. And that's five years of roots going down and mining nutrients that got beyond the depth that corn and soybeans can get. So the soil type we have here is Hortonville, where we have about 18 inches of topsoil and then 90 feet of clay, uh, stratified with veins of, uh, you know, water-bearing sand. But... That's a great place to grow alfalfa because <clears throat> we can get alfalfa that's going down 20, 30 feet and mining nutrients that otherwise would end up in groundwater and bringing them up and give us, giving us another chance at giving those, getting those into the cow and getting them into growing plants.
0: We haven't talked very much about the dairy yet to this point, but a key part of this is what you're doing with the manure, and you may want to speak about what you're doing now, but you've got some exciting things that are going to be coming up about being able to do even more, and that impacts even
1: more than just this dairy. Yeah, we do. Um, We've gone from daily hauling. Uh, We had that pretty much figured out. Uh, It wasn't a great system, but it worked. Now we're uh, in liquid manure with the manure pit, and we're just getting that figured out. And it looks like we're going to be building a digester. So we're working in conjunction with Vanguard Renewables. And we're going to build a co-digester. So we're going to supplement our 100 tons of manure that we make daily with about 250 tons of food waste. And co-digesters are extremely efficient in making gas. When you think about it, manure-only digesters, the easy carbohydrates are already gone. The cows have taken those easy carbohydrates out. But when you can supplement that that manure with, a, with rocket fuel, like beer, or yogurt, or, you know, SpaghettiOs, or any kind of food that's expired, now you've got a tremendous food base for those bacteria, and Vanguard Renewables was, was very open about it. When I went out and toured their facilities, my first question was, well, every, every digester in Wisconsin and the Midwest has basically failed. What makes you any different? And they said, well, trying to make electricity in the Midwest is a really bad idea because there's just not money in it. So we're going to make renewable natural gas and pump it right back into the pipeline. And they said the second thing is, no offense, but, you know, farmers were sold a bill of sale where they were told, you just get this digester, you fill it up with manure, and you turn on the switch, and it makes the electricity. It's not that simple. They have a biochemist on staff 24 hours a day at this digester, and they feed their digester like I feed my cows. So they feed it a balanced diet, their digester can get bloated, and then it takes three weeks to get it back you know, in production again. But um, listening to them talk about how they feed a digester reminds me of sitting down with a nutritionist talking about how I feed my cows. Compared to a manure-only digester, a co-digester can make 7 to 10 times more renewable natural gas than a manure only can. So talk
0: about then the other product. It'll be mostly a a dry type of manure or byproduct
1: that you can spread on the fields then, or will you sell some of that or do both? Yeah, both. Uh, we, uh, We have an agreement with Vanguard that obviously bringing in that much food waste, we're going to have more nutrients than we can handle on our land base. So we're... Looking at technology, there's a couple different technologies we're looking at, even looking at algae. And how cool would it be if we can grow algae and grow feed or at least protein for our cows 12 months out of the year in this climate under, you know, under a greenhouse? So that's one technology we're looking at, possibly uh, feeding algae and growing protein. But other than that, being able to strip out nitrogen and phosphorus and sell them as a segregated Uh, organic fertilizer so we think it's going to become another income stream on top of being able to use the fertilizer as our own product or some farms are using it for bedding solids but we use sand bedding uh, and I've learned never to say never but as of now we're going to still stay with sand. I've heard you say though could it be where some of the
0: byproducts become the chief product rather than the 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 dairy part I mean uh, this is becoming a pretty big deal.
1: Yeah almost you know on paper Uh, It's pretty exciting because it looks like there could be some revenue streams with the fertilizer sales and the tea water that we're going to irrigate with. Uh, It almost looks like uh, milk could become a byproduct. Uh, The manure, sadly, could become worth as much or more than the the milk itself.
0: So looking at other dairies, because certainly the dairy industry is a tough industry and a lot have dropped out. So is this a way that could be replicated? Or you've mentioned this food waste has to come in, or is it going to be very dependent upon being
1: around other stuff, other byproducts to be able to make these types of systems work? Well, obviously, location has a lot to do with it. We're in what Vanguard considers the Chicago food market. So that food market, as they draw it, is a circle that encompasses the entire western shoreline of Lake Michigan. So from Marinette to Chicago and uh, approximately over to the Twin Cities. That food, we're on a four-lane highway, we're a mile off a four-lane highway, so yeah, location has a lot to do with it, because remember, six to eight semi-loads of food waste have to come in every day. So yes, if you have the location, if, uh, if you're close enough to an injection site where you don't have to truck the gas, uh, that makes it even more lucrative, and we're, we are within their window. They say five miles is the limit that they'll go, and we're 4.8 miles from a main. I think we're sitting in a pretty good spot. Now this digester isn't for sure, we have a lot of permitting to do yet, but it looks like we're on the fast track to make it happen.
0: I believe you mentioned you're in the six to 700 cow range is what you're milking. Certainly there are dairies that are larger, but how are you making this then a business that can last for even more generations? You're, you've got daughters coming into this business, so what's the longevity of this business looking forward?
1: Uh, diversity. I think we're fooling ourselves if we think that we're going to be sustainable and be in this game just being a commercial dairy producer down the road at 700 or 1,000 cows, um, and we have a story to tell. And quite honestly, you know, we're selling beef and we're selling cheese and we're looking at selling maple syrup and maybe growing wine grapes. But when it all comes down to it, we're not selling beef or cheese or wine grapes. We're selling our story. We're selling ourselves. And... We have a tremendous story to tell. We have a tremendous history. Uh, I've got four incredibly intelligent daughters. Even though only two of them are on the farm, they all four work together, and they have you know sit downs, go out to dinner, and go, what's the next thing? You know, what are we going? Where do we take this? What do we do next? So that's pretty exciting.
0: You get asked to speak, I think, quite a bit, not only on cover crops and conservation state sustainability, but also going from one generation to another. So before we run out of time, what else would you like for farmers to know, thinking about the path you've had as far as building a good business, but then having a business that not only
1: runs well, but can go from one generation to the next? Start them early. You know, my kids, uh, started working. They were all athletes, so they didn't spend a lot of time and they weren't milkmaids. They weren't forced to be in the parlor, but, um, you know, they, they, had, they had a hand in it. They had to pick rocks. They had to feed calves. And I think that was integral in them understanding what it takes to make this farm move to the next generation. It's not so often you see families where greed steps in, and they're, you know, in our case it was a divorce. And literally these four girls stepped in and saved the farm because they said, Mom and Dad, you know, stop fighting about the land. The land is this big asset. Give it to us. And uh, we both just gave our, you know, our, each of us gave our half of the farm to the girls. And our sustainability and our succession plan got put into Fast Track right there. So, you know, start them early. And I think, you know, just reinforce what it really takes. It's not, it's not money. It's trust and it's family. And that goes way beyond what money can buy. Before I wind up, I've got to ask you. You're a barefoot water skier, so tell me
0: how you got into this and where you stand nationally. I didn't even realize there were national rankings, but you're in the top.
1: Well, I I was at one time. You know, At one point, uh, I was ranked fifth, and my daughter was ranked second at the barefoot. It's called Footstock. It's uh, held in Crandon, Wisconsin every year, and it's it's the national tournament for uh, endurance barefooting. And... uh, I'm not the only one. There's another dairy farmer in the state, uh, the Hellers, over by Eau Claire, and they actually have their own barefoot lake on the farm. It's called the Blue Moo. And PDPW is thinking about uh, doing a dairy promotion stunt or a video over there, and our boat is called Milk Money. We have a Nautique, uh, our barefoot boat that we use for pulling barefooters, is called Milk Money. And we said it'd be kind of cool to have milk money on the Blue Moo and have the Heller kids and my kids and everybody out there barefooting. So Cody, Cody Heller is actually, I think, the uh, president of the National Barefoot Association. So we're not the only dairy farmers in this game. The Hellers are pretty big into it, too.
0: What's your record then?
1: Um, it's not really a record, you know. It's two people behind a boat. And uh, the last man standing wins. I like it because, you know, there's no, there's no style points. You stand up, you win. So I, I don't even know what my win-loss record was, but uh, probably more wins than losses. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, for folks that are wondering how to find you, because you have a store and things, they can find you not only in person but online as well, right?
1: Yeah, we have a great website. The girls have uh, done a great job on that. It's brooksfarms1855.com. And I know on Facebook, uh, they just put a new video out. They rebranded our uh, cheese and our beef, and it's called uh, Black and White by Brooks Farms. I appreciate the time. Uh, Thank you very much.
0: It was nice to meet Ron, his family, and employees on their farm near Waupaca, Wisconsin. They have a store right there on the farm where you can find their cheese and more. And you can look through the large window to see them milking cows when you visit. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Remember, you can hear all of our shows at farmingthecountryside.com, on many local radio stations, and on your favorite podcast platform. And you can follow Farming the Countryside on Facebook as well. I appreciate you listening. I'm Andrew McCray. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by
1: Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com.